This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and we've just marked two grim milestones. It's been a year since the first case of COVID was discovered here in Toronto. And as of yesterday, 20,000 people have died of the disease. The vast majority of those people over 60 the vast majority of those people over 80. And as we know, nursing home residents are by far the biggest, the worst casualties of the pandemic. And now there's even more reason to worry, despite the fact that numbers are going down because of these new, more contagious variants that have started to circulate here. So, um, Let's give the, out the numbers. If you have anything to say about all of this, uh, it's been a year. A lot of people are tired. How are you feeling about it? How are we dealing with it now? The numbers to call 416 360 toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi and welcome. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Hi. Well, uh, I'm not sure uh, there, there's a lot to celebrate the, this Monday. The, these numbers are not good. Peter? No, they're terrible. And, um, you know, just to, uh, a little bit of perspective, um, the, first, the, the pandemic in 1918 to 20 killed, you know, that, that's generally what we consider to be the worst of all pandemics. It's it killed 55,000 Canadians. So um, we're halfway there almost. And uh, it doesn't look like the vaccines are going to come soon enough. Like we're not going to have um, Canadians vaccinated. They say September. I, I think it's going to be later. So we can expect many more deaths to come before, before uh, you know, we get through this. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing, if you're comparing this to the last pandemic, uh, we're in the second wave. A lot of people were thinking that would be it when we're done with this. But there were three waves. Three waves. In, yeah. in the 1918 to 1920 pandemic. Yeah. David, what are your thoughts? I think that um, Peter makes a good point. I think that, you know, generically older people were more vulnerable back then as well. But I don't know that the concentration was as pronounced. And I think the real tragedy here that's shaping up rapidly is that it's going to look like a lose-lose. We didn't protect the most vulnerable people um, in terms of, you know, life-death, but we inflicted this massive, massive uh, disruption, which is going to lead to untold other medical problems for all age groups. So we didn't, we didn't protect the most vulnerable and we inflicted amazing damage on uh, everybody else. And, uh, you know, we can point fingers and second guess. And I think some of the blame is, will be justifiably spread around, but it is, it's a tragedy that there's just no way, uh, no other way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Bill? Yeah, we, we saw the uh, the first wave. Uh, we the second wave was predicted. Nothing was uh, done to really solve a lot of the underlying issues uh, after the first wave. And now it looks like with the uh, with the possible uh, mutant um, uh, forms coming along, we could well go into a third wave. And we still don't seem to be dealing with the basic issues that are uh, creating the problem. And now, you know, it's, it's a race between the, the vaccine and, uh, and uh, where we're going to end up. And the vaccine is losing. Uh, 
uh, older adults, the CARP members that we're talking to, are uh, they're disappointed, they're sad, they're anxious. They can't understand the the inaction and why more hasn't been done. Well, you know, in terms of uh, preparing for the second wave, some provinces have done a lot better than others. And I'm thinking of British Columbia and Quebec. Quebec put in and spent money on a training program for personal support workers. They call them orderlies and paid people to train and hired a lot of people. There's a huge amount of attrition, even with the new people. But there's a huge amount of attrition uh, with people who have experience in the sector. It's a dangerous, poorly paid job with a lot of burnout. Uh, those people, I mean, it's a cliche, they're heroes, but they aren't paid for being heroes. That's for sure. Uh, so Quebec did a reasonable job. They also put one person in every nursing home responsible for infection control. That um, BC is also doing well. And here in Ontario, we seem to be laggards. David. The reason is that it wasn't treated as a unusual once in a lifetime emergency calling for out of the box thinking and unconventional uh, action. It was treated as something that could be handled by the normal processes. And if you look at um, the inspections of infection control, you just mentioned infection control, Libby, there wasn't any inspecting done during the summer when the first wave had receded. There was no preventive anticipatory inspection done in the nursing homes. The business as usual, if we get a complaint about verbal abuse or unsafe uh, equipment or something, we'll go in there, but they didn't, they didn't check everything when they had the chance to do so. And they treated it as business as usual. And that's why we're paying the price now. The other provinces took extraordinary action, action that might not be sustainable all the time, but they took extraordinary action for a massive, extraordinary crisis. And they didn't do that here. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've heard from nursing homes, both for-profit and not-for-profit, that when they plead for help, it takes too long because it gets bureaucratic. They do these management arrangements and nothing happens until all the legalities and the uh, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Uh, Does anybody have any inkling why the Ford government is not about to call in the military, Peter? I I think, Libby, uh, you know, I I, I don't know this for a fact, but I I think they were so embarrassed the first time around that... um, you know, what if the military came in again, found the same conditions on the ground again, and issued another damning report? That that would be the end of Ford, I think. And uh, he can't. I I think it's politically motivated. Like it it doesn't seem to be any other reason why the military isn't coming in to help, especially in Barrie and other places that are swamped. Well, it's it's interesting because, and, you know, when he does these big emotive reactions, I, I, I mean, I think they are genu- genuine. They aren't necessarily uh, followed up with action. But his first reaction was, uh, I'll never turn help down and I have to check. And it sounds mm. like his people, who he still seems to have a great deal of confidence in, uh, put a kibosh on it and they keep touting these management agreements, David. You just have to look at the Morocco inquiry, which requested an extension till the end of the year so that they could dig deeper and examine more thoroughly the 5,000 pages of documents they've accumulated already and maybe do further digging. And uh, the, uh, the Ford government said, no, we demand the report by April 30th. That's wrap it up. Now, nothing would stop the Morocco Commission from issuing interim reports if you didn't want to wait till December. They've issued them before. They issued an interim report before. So by letting them continue their mandate to dig deeper, you're not stopping them from issuing an interim report. Why are you shutting them down early? What are they afraid of? Well, I don't know. There are a lot of people uh, who say, we don't need another report. We know what the problems are. There have been umpteen commissions. Bill, do you have a view on that? Yeah, it's once again, and I, we keep saying this, I know, week after week, but it's a lack of willingness to take action, real action on doing things now. All the government is doing is promising a future activity and why there is a, a lack of, of interest of moving right now. Uh, Quebec 
did it in terms of getting uh, new staff into their homes. And even though they were in a, a much worse state originally than we were in Ontario, uh, but that it seems that uh, it would appear that politically they don't want to admit that, that they need to make changes. So they're going with the same old, same old and hoping that uh, doing things the same way will mean things in the end become different. And we know all know what that's the definition of. Okay, let's go to uh, Marilyn in Lindsay. Hi, Marilyn. Hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, so we have an outbreak in one of our nursing homes here, and um, it's unfortunate that the government won't uh, send in the Army. I agree that they want to save face. So our hospital is sending hospital staff over. My problem with that is our hospital staff is not routinely checked for uh, COVID, but nursing home staff is. The government was all up in arms how a PSW would go from one nursing home to another, but now you've got hospital staff coming in and cleaners and then going back to the hospital too. How how come that is okay? Uh, They're not being checked. I mean, I know that finally the government... I know the hospital staff isn't routinely being checked. I think, well, what I heard on the weekend, and I hope this happens, is that a lot of these rapid test kits that they've been sitting on are going to be deployed to hospitals and high-risk work environments. Uh, I hope that happens, but I... I, I okay, you know. so, so maybe they are doing that. I, I'm a retired nurse, and I, this, this thing is just out of control. It's just, it makes me feel, well, today I have canceled my elective surgery because you have well, we canceled have, we didn't, can- when I booked it, we didn't have any COVID tests and or COVID patients in the hospital. We do now. Um, and the fact that this virus, that people can be asymptomatic, not just younger people, older people. We have, I, a colleague of mine has her mother in this home that has the outbreak she was moved to it 24 hours from the hospital, 24 hours before the first outbreak, and now she is testing positive. She has oh, absolutely no. no symptoms still, which is great, but and with her dementia is really, really tough. And um, anyway, I mean, that's the problem with this virus. People can have it, not know they have it, don't have any symptoms, and don't get tested. Um, let me ask you this, your surgery, did you cancel it or did the hospital? I have canceled it. Oh, on your end. Okay. Uh, not, yeah, it can wait. It's something that can wait. And uh, I don't feel comfortable going in. And if uh, my husband has had uh, heart surgery in the past, and if I ever brought it home, you know, I just, it, it's just yeah. safer for yeah. me mm-hmm. to just wait on it. I, well, I, you know, um, I hope you get your surgery and everything is okay, um, you know, when the time comes. Thanks for letting us know what's going on there. But uh, unfortunately, nothing that you say is much of a surprise. I hope they do get a little more testing, but uh, it's it's very upsetting. It is very upsetting. I've sent a couple of letters off on Friday. um, The Ontario Health Coalition had a lot of speakers for about two hours. I listened and and forwarded the the letter on to both Premier Ford and the MPP here um, and did uh, urge Premier Ford to that money that he's got from the feds to use it on long-term care. He's done nothing. It's disgusting. Okay, then. Thanks so much for that, Marilyn. You're welcome. Have a good day. Okay. Let's take one more from David in Toronto. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today? Fine, how are you? Good. Um, so the, the question that you would ask is, why is Ford not calling in the military? In my opinion, so we let's remember that they passed a law protecting uh, the amount of legal suits that can go against them long-term right. care. If the military gets in and they find and produce another report, there supposedly is already a large class action suit that's being mounted there are several. Any more information that can be given to that class action suit could probably allow for it to proceed. There, there are a number of these class action suits. Yes, well, I, I, I've only heard about the latest one that, that's gone on. Um, so, anyways, that's my opinion. Okay, that's an interesting thought, David. Thank you for that. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, so, um, I don't know. 
the other really disturbing trend, and it's hard to say who is behind it. Uh, some of it, the government is seems to have been involved in, is the bullying of and harassment of doctors who disagree with the government. And the, in one case, it was Dr. David Fisman, who's a very uh, well-respected epidemiologist. Uh, you know, the uh, reporter said he, he accepted money from a teacher's union uh, for some consulting. And uh, he has been talking about the return to school that he didn't get paid for. Uh, he, he consulted on a different issue. And uh, the reporter was saying that disqualified him from giving advice to the government on um, uh, at one of those tables. And then the government immediately late at night on a weekend issued a statement about how concerning and bad this was. And, and then uh, it, he had a lot of support from people, including Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, and uh, it kind of went away with that. But there's another doctor who said he lost his uh, administrative job because of criticizing the government. These are there, there, there's kind of starting to be a, a critical mass of these allegations. Um, David, what do you think? Well, I think it's very uh, interesting and instructive how shocked the government professed to be. Uh, Dr. Fistman reported that his consultation with the teachers uh, was more than six months ago and was outside the uh, timeline that was on the questionnaire he had to fill out declaring all his different Thing. But more importantly, the advice he brought, the, the opinions he brought to the science table were the same. Uh, it's not like he, te- as what he, what he testified uh, vis-a-vis the teachers. So it's not like he tailored his recommendations to change the science around to take a position on behalf of the teachers uh, that he hadn't taken uh, in general. And as you said, Libby, he's a very well-respected epidemiologist. He happens to be uh, critical of the um, government's position on school closures. Um, and uh, it's very disturbing that this is what they get, you know, irate about. They profess themselves to be shocked. That was the exact what this conflict of interest, like it was some big uh, issue. And I think that's just they're firing a warning shot saying you better watch what you say. Well, yeah, and and a, a lot of doctors, frankly, are are critical of the government. And I, I mean, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is on one of these tables, and it was a private conversation, which he he confirmed three times, and and basically said, "Hey, there is no advantage or percentage in me criticizing the government." Plain and simple. Yeah, and uh, you you won't. You won't go very far if you if you do right. The, the, these three doctors have learned. Um. I don't think they're going to stop, uh, and I they you know, but it, but it's um, it's disturbing. I mean, especially that whole culture. Uh, you know, first of all, people in medicine they disagree with each other. It's not a monolithic thing. Uh, my personal experience with doctors is that they would often, for on whatever subject, advocate something that might be too extreme for a regular person, and it's probably because they see all the worst outcomes, right? But also, we've painted this with a very broad brush, and it wouldn't be surprising that some sectors of the actions that are being taken, um, the policies are wrong. The schools have been a controversial issue all along. The American pediatrics is that this debate is raging in the United States. They have about half the state's schools are, in fact, operating. Others, they're not. And they're done. the infection rate doesn't appear to be any uh, different. I'm Again, I'm just describing the landscape. I'm not offering, you know, medical expert advice. But it's not exactly a weird off-the-charts um assertion that more harm is being done to the students, both um, especially in terms of stress and also in learning, um, by not keeping the schools open, the risk of infection is minimal. They are, in fact, I think, getting back to school next week, finally. So it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, the doctor went out on a limb and made some irresponsible comments. And if they're shutting down that kind of expert uh, commentary, then it just 
compounds their problems. I don't know why they would do that. Why would they wouldn't just, you know, let him say his piece and keep moving. Well, I don't know. There, I think there's a lot of, um, among uh, certain people, just too thin-skinned, <laughs> frankly. Well, yeah, yeah, by now, by now, I guess, yeah. This uh, government yeah. is showing itself to be very thin-skinned. I mean, uh, Ford fired that, um, you know, uh, Roman Barber, the the MPP who wrote a letter about the lockdowns. He, he fired him from caucus. And so I, I, I think, um, you know, Ford is feeling the, the criticism, and he's subtly, uh, you know, spreading... Uh, you know, trying to what they call gaslighting these guys. Yes. And um, you know, it, you know, so in in a, you you can sort of um, negate their opinion by suggesting that they have a conflict of interest, which you know he said it's deeply concerning, and I, I find that um, behavior on Ford's part deeply concerning. Well, yeah, well, it the, is I mean, concerning. it is. I think it's, it's concerning all concerning that. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Say, say it, it's it's concerning that he would be trying to shut shut them down. I mean, uh, I'm no lawyer, but a potential conflict of interest uh, should be dec- disclosed. But just because the person's involved in providing advice to government doesn't mean he can't give advice to other people uh, too. In the case of Fisman, uh, uh, it was clear that uh, uh, that it was made known that he had been giving advice to the. The teachers and the quality of a uh, qualified professional advice shouldn't be measured by whether or not the expert is is even paid. Uh, this, what you know, as as uh, Peter said, we're re- really seeing the politicizing of of the question and putting politics over science, and that continues to be a major issue in the COVID uh, crisis. That uh, and and the criticism may be a part of a larger effort by the government uh, to quiet experts who are critical of it. And that's the most worrisome part of this issue. Well, uh, does anybody know uh, when when doctors serve on these tables, do they get an honorarium or do they get paid in any way? Does anyone know? I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm yeah. not sure. My, my understanding was they were volunteers on the government table. Okay, yeah, that's what I would have imagined, but who knows. Um, We uh, only have a few minutes left to pivot. Uh, We alluded to this earlier, but I know that with the vaccine rollout, people in the community are very concerned, and I'm kind of scratching my head saying, you have a lot of older people in the community who are healthy and who are older. Shouldn't they have more priority because... Don't you want them to stay healthy if for no other we're, reason we're than getting, not to clog up the hospital? Yeah, we're getting more uh, comments and communication from our CARP members and other older adults who are concerned about when they're going to get their back vaccine than any other uh, uh, issue. And uh, they're very, they're very concerned that, uh, uh, you know, uh, although, uh, you know, five to seven percent of our older adults are in long term care homes. 90 to 95% are still living in the community and, and their own homes. And in many ways, they are uh, as much at risk and sometimes more because of their forced interaction with the community to uh, to getting COVID uh, themselves. We even have one uh, group of volunteers who's, who's talking about making this a human rights issue in Ontario. Hmm. Peter. Peter. Um, yeah, well, um, the, the the whole the whole idea about um, the, the vaccination campaign, uh, especially it, it's completely stalled right now for the next week or so. But um, At least. you know, Ontario is misreporting the numbers, and um, you know, it turns out they they've only vaccinated forty percent of long term care residents, as opposed to Quebec, which is at seventy five. And, and Alberta, which is at 90, over 90. So, um, you know, there, there's something wonky in the way Ontario is delivering its vaccines, and uh, they really need to get on top of it. Well, um, they claim that they will be finished by the end of the week and and that they were holding back second doses for long-term care. 
Um, so let's hope so. But mm-hmm. again, it, it all seemed to get a bit derailed. I know that the Nurses Association says the problem is that the it was handed over to the hospitals to handle. Uh, and that was a mistake. Uh, and we know that also that Ontario, long after other jurisdictions figured out a way to bring the Pfizer vaccine to long-term care because it needs extra care and refrigeration, Ontario was still saying it couldn't be done and vaccinating younger people in, in other places. Mm-hmm. But didn't they also, just following up to what Peter said, didn't they also double count, like they misreported how oh, many they vaccines they had given out? Yeah, they misreported how many people were fully vaccinated in long-term care. I'm laughing. It's not funny, but it's sort of but getting to that, be a bit of a farce. Isn't that a terrible error? Like, like, isn't that a, like a, a really suggestive of the of stupidity in the, in the uh, vaccination task force? Uh, I don't know if it's a, I, I, okay, if you want my personal opinion, yes. I don't think that the general uh, is, you know, was the right person, even though when he was announced, I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. I I think that part of the problem was that at a certain point he issued a directive saying that the most important thing was speed. You're not going to be very quick getting through nursing homes, right? Right. So uh, I do think that they've started to correct some of that, but now there's no vaccine. Like it, To a certain extent, the whole thing is a smoke stream right. because we don't have vaccines. There's nothing to vaccinate with. Right. That's exactly right. And they, they don't have vaccines. And maybe let's, let's pray that they're using the hiatus to improve their delivery because the misreporting they did wasn't trivial. It was like a twice they report like there was a massive error in, in, in uh, they double counted they, they double counted and yeah. then that's how do you do that i mean that's how do you do that, that? they that counted somebody have to they counted the number of doses and since you need two doses to be vaccinated so you yes. just cut it in half that's how they did it that's yeah. a mistake uh that's so that's kind of a basic that's, that's kind of, kind of yes I, I, you know, mom would say it's not nice to call people stupid, but it's a pretty <laughs> stupid mistake. At this stage of the game, when we're playing with life and death, but but in the end, um, in a sense, Ford gets a pass because he can't, you know, vaccinate people if there's no vaccine. And the question is, how big a comeback is this going to be? It's a whole other topic for another day uh, on our friend, uh, the prime minister, uh, and when you start looking, peeling back, you know, the layers of that uh, whole fiasco, uh, I think it's going to be uh, not a pleasant picture. So we've got to just tuck in and wait till the uh, till the vaccines arrive and hope they well, do a better they, uh, job going forward. Okay, the the well, immediate and current question is, will they learn from the mistakes when they first rolled this out? So when we get the vaccines back again, will they be able to? do it better. They didn't learn the first wave after COVID hit. Surely they'll do a better job. We only hope they will with the vaccines. They've got a pause. They've got a, tie, a, a chance to change their system. Boy, they better do it. Or systems because it's the province handling it. Anyway, I've got to wrap it up there. We are totally out of time. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thanks, Thanks. Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest guidance on masks. There's been a lot of talk about doubling up on masks. I'm holding up my two masks here. Uh, uh, I'll show you when we return and we will have a couple of experts to ask all the questions because maybe we need better masks than we've been using. Before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. If you have questions, we'll be back right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With the news about the newer, more contagious variants, we've started to see new stricter guidance about how and where 
to wear masks. America's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has been promoting the idea of wearing more than one mask to increase protection and curb the spread. We've been hearing that those cloth masks, some of which are homemade, should have three layers. That's uh, two layers of cloth, and uh, I'm demonstrating here a filter that can go in the middle, and other people are saying that you should just wear two masks. So it would be kind of like this, and uh, if you're watching, this is the surgical mask. You put this one on, pinch your nose, and uh, saying it's a good idea to put your cloth mask over that. This one can be adjusted to make it tighter. So I'm taking them off. I'm alone in a room with double layers of doors and plexiglass, so I don't need them right now. Um, so uh, the, the question is, what do we really need to do now with these variants? The science keeps evolving. And so we're going to get the current thinking from a couple of experts. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740 if you have questions. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious diseases physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Hello, welcome, and thank you so much for doing this. Hello. No problem. Uh, so let's start with Dr. Chagla. So is it time for us to get stricter about how we mask up? So I think there's a, a, an initial discussion about what people are wearing outside. And, and so we've seen a lot of different masks. We've seen a lot of different people with masks or being worn at different states. And, and realistically, as we're moving forward with the variant, the best mask we can recommend is the one that is being worn. Uh, you know, there are baseline standards from the Public Health Agency of Canada for a three-layer mask, as you described. Part of that is not only that these types of masks prevent people from spreading COVID-19, but also offer some personal protection as well. So I think, you know, with the discussions that are going on and double masking and all that stuff, you know, first of all, we really need to just make sure people are wearing good quality standardized masks. I wouldn't be focusing on two two layers. I would be focusing on making sure people are wearing the appropriate mask at the appropriate time and are following the minimum standards. Dr. Sly. Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, with almost everything that uh, Dr. Chagas said. Uh, the important thing to realize, step back a second, realize that nothing is 100%. Uh, none of the tests, none of the vaccines, none of the precautions are really 100%. So it's really a case of increasing wherever you can and, uh, and bet- bettering the odds, if you like. Um, the, uh, I actually wear a double mask and I have done for a long time because I'm one of those nasty, crusty, wrinkly old timers, you see. Uh, I wear an industrial, uh, type, not a medical type, N95, which has got the vent in the front. So you wouldn't wear that because all of the air comes out, uh, but it's very good to protect me. And then on top of that, I put a, a very good three layer, uh, mask that's quite tight fitting over the top of that. And that, I think, gives the best of Optim- optimizes the the uh, the risk for everybody, uh, the, me and for everybody else, and that's good. But as Dr. Chagla said, the main thing is to get everybody wearing a reasonably good mask right away. That's the first step. Isn't uh, uh, your your uh, your uh, contraption there? Isn't it a little hard to wear? Tight, hard to breathe? Not at all. No, the N95 is, is keeps the, the mask fabric away from your nose and mouth. It's it's a structured thing. And so uh, if it's well-fitted, that's a central thing for N95. It's going to be well-fitted. You can't get them really now. This is some construction stuff I had left back from a couple of years ago. But, it, no, it, it improves the, uh, the, the breathing altogether. But you've got to get it fitted very well. No, no two people's faces are the same, and they don't fit. You've got to make sure that works. Uh, I gather, Dr. Chagla, that 
the main issue with whatever mask you're wearing is is the fit. And if uh, they're loose or anything like that, then that's problematic. Yeah, absolutely. The mask that's slipping down under the nose, the mask that someone has to keep readjusting, the mask that's open at the sides. You know, those aren't going to be as effective as a well-fitting mask that goes over the face, that goes under the chin, that goes over the nose. And and one of the minor benefits of the double masking um, is that is that the two layers create some tension on the side. But you theoretically can do that with just a good fitting mask. It might take a few to get to that model. But, you know, I would gain, I would rather people have access and try and find a mask that they're comfortable with, that meets the minimum standards, that fits their face appropriately, rather than necessarily worrying about putting two or three masks on top. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I know the first few cloth masks that I bought, like they were terrible. They didn't fit mm-hmm. at all. And uh, these, which uh, give a plug, Zoomer Media gave out, they're very good because they've they've got the the metal in the front to pinch your nose, and they're adjustable around the ears, and they've got room for a filter. I gather you can now find fil- filters. When these masks first came out, I'm I don't know how many stores I went to. Nobody had filters, so. <laughs> So we shall see. I'm going to take a couple of calls. Michael in Mississauga. Hi, Michael. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I just want to make a comment. I'm willing to try it. I have to go and purchase a phone and then ship it to my brother in Toronto. I'm in Mississauga. I was a little skeptical, skeptical about the mask to start with, but um, like even through before they told people to only do minimal travel, I've do that anyway, uh, uh, basically out for shopping or walking the dog. Um, but uh, my, I guess I've been lucky. I had a cloth mask that fit, fit perfectly. The only problem was I have a cleft chin and a beard, so it covers my mouth and my nose, but it, a lot of people criticize me because it comes up, seems to come up short, but it's all fitting. Okay, thanks for that, Michael. Uh, you had trouble believing in masks at first. Now you're willing to wear two. That's that's good to hear. Um, it, I mean, certainly most of the people who call into this show uh, are pretty well on board with the measures that have to be taken. A lot of the people are older, which means they're at risk. Um, do you think the public is ready, Dr. Chagla, for two masks? I think... There's still hesitancy. There's still people that, you know, don't have the mask when they're out in public that, you know, want to not necessarily adhere to precautions. And so, you know, again, there's not that much proven incremental benefit here. Even Dr. Fauci yesterday was saying, he respects the CDC for not changing their guidance, which is similar to ours. Um, and I think, you know, you can make these recommendations, but the practicality of it, you know, when someone's going to forget a mask, now you have to remember to have two masks packed. It, it creates an expectation of something that's not really practical. Again, if people have a mask, that's accessible in the right setting, you probably buy the majority of benefit there. Is there an incremental tiny benefit to having a second mask on? Sure. But I would much rather have more people doing the baseline rather than focusing on the 1%. Okay. I, I have a question I have to ask about something that affects me and a lot of other people I know uh, and everybody, forgive me if it is, it might be a teensy bit gross. So um, my nose runs every day of my life. And in the winter, it can be like a tap. And there's nothing unusual about that. It's, I've been like that my entire life. So, But it, it can be problematic when you're wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. What are you supposed to do? <laughs> Don't all jump at once. Yeah. I mean... The, the, the ideal thing is the mask stays on in environments 
where there's a lot of people, right? So, you know, if you can find environments when people are away, wipe your nose quickly, take off the mask, wash your hands, put it back on. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, you're right. Sometimes in public, your nose is running and you're around people and it's, it's disgusting, but you have to stay under the mask. The, the worst, and then for someone who works in the hospital that has to wear a mask all the time, is when you have to sneeze under a mask, oh, which no. is just, uh, <laughs> is, is not a fun experience. <laughs> and, and finding a bathroom and changing out your mask is, is never in that sense. But that's what, what they're supposed to do, right? The respiratory droplets are supposed to stay on your side of the mask. Okay. Um, and if you kind of um, surreptitiously reach in, uh, just pull the mask away and and wipe your nose. That's is that uh, very uncool or? I mean, again, in a small diversion isn't the end of the world. But the expectation is, if you're going to adjust your mask, adjust it away from people, not not in front of people. Okay, but and you don't have to throw it out after you've adjusted it. No, 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 not at all. Just wash your hands as long as it's not soiled or it's not uh, visibly torn or damaged, it can be continued to be one. Yeah. Okay, I'll take a call, because the only other question I have is that um, the no-transfer lipstick I wear transfers onto the mask, but that's not the end of the world. <laughs> okay, let's go to Warren in Oshawa. Hi, Warren. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. You're very Just welcome. I wanted to ask the doctors, how often should you change your mask out for a new one? Thank you. Dr. Sly? Well, it depends to some degree on the, on the, on the fiber that your mask is made from. Um, a surgeon's mask, of course, was, was made for a single use. And, uh, and, and, and don't forget, while, we, while we're on the subject of surgeon's mask, it, that was never intended really to protect the person wearing it. It was really to protect the patient that you're operating on from the from their mucus and bits of breakfast and moisture and so on that was coming out of the surgeon. It was to protect that way. But um, uh, uh, the, uh, the we have some masks now with the highly washable, and so uh, if you if, if, there's nothing wrong with taking them out. I have about a, a package of six of the fiber fabric masks, and I, I wash them on a routine basis. I have a couple of N95s that I uh, I can wear once, and I leave it for don't put it on for another week. After a week, there should be no viable virus there at all. It sort of self-cleans cleans itself. Watch out for some of them that are not designed to be washed at all. They, they, they lose their, uh, their, uh, their impingement capacity. Remember that your mask is not actually trying to filter anything. The virus itself is, you could fit two viruses side by side in the openings in the fiber in the mask. So it's not supposed to, nobody breathes out naked virus. We all breathe out virus inside droplets. And the idea of the fabric is to, is to capture that droplet, whether what the size is, one micron up to a, at a hundred microns uh, and, and and so it said it's the five it's the fiber of the mask now supposedly with lots of virus either front or back depending on whether you're infected or somebody else's that needs to be either disposed of or then washed carefully and watch out for your hands as you're taking it on and off i use a little little bottle of 70 uh, percent isopropyl alcohol spray which i always carry with me everywhere well okay uh we have to th- take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll be taking more of your calls and your questions about wearing masks. Should you wear more masks and what's the right way to wear the mask when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am talking to Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Zane Chagla about the latest Mac uh, mask guidance. Uh, we've been hearing guidance that maybe we should be wearing two masks uh, to make sure that they fit really well. Teresa Tam said that cloth masks should now have three layers. Uh, that's like two layers of cloth and a filter. I'm showing off our handy-dandy Zoomer Media mask here. Uh, So uh, I'm just trying to get it straight from the experts because, as always, it can be a little confusing for us. Uh, We'll take a question from Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi, Libby. Uh, The only two small parts of me are the bottom half of my face and my shoulders. I finally found a mask that fits 
perfectly. It's a child's extra large, but the store that I get it at is a non-essential. And uh, I bought nine of them, which is fine, and they are completely washable. Uh, other than trying to figure out whose name might be on the label, any suggestions? Oh, uh, I I suspect our 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 doctors are not going to be able to help with that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say go online. There are all kinds of places that are selling masks and, uh, and find a child size. I'm trying to think. Somebody I know was making masks right at the beginning, and they definitely had children's masks. So. Uh-oh. Uh, go, go on. I think it's called, was called Community Mask. You can try it, but online you will find it. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Okay. Stay healthy. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, and again, Simone in Parkdale wants to know, you want an N95 mask? Yes. I'm just wondering where you could find them. I don't have a computer, so... Uh, I, I think they're very hard to find, but I do do uh, do people who are not not in high risk jobs, doctors, do they need N95 masks? Um, yeah, there are some professions. I mean, N95 masks were used for occupations outside of medicine, and they still are. So for construction, uh, you know, any industries where there's a lot of aerosols produced. Uh, they're hard to find, though. Uh, well, that- there are KN95s, which are kind of a generic equivalent. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit easier to find, mainly online. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, there's also a lot of sellers of N95 masks, which may not be completely legitimate. So right. it's a little bit tricky to find them and one that works as well as advertised. Well, I have the, I wear the ordinary blue ones, you know, and I don't trust them that much. Sometimes I wear a double one and sometimes I'll put saran wrap in front. And I think saran wrap probably would be a little better. The only problem is they don't cover the side of the face very much. Okay, but but the question is, I uh, my question is, who really needs those? Uh, Dr. Sly, for somebody who is not working in construction or a dangerous uh, job, and I'm assuming that's, Simone, that you don't. No. Uh, do they really need an N95 or one of those sort of slightly less... Uh, effective ones? Do they really need that? Well, the, the N95 was, was made for construction work originally. The N means non-oil particles, and the 95 means that you're trapping 95% of the particles that would get through a, a 300 nanometer wide space. But it was rapidly taken up by a, an, as an industry, industry standard for, for medical procedures like respiratory technology where they're exposed to a huge amount of uh, airborne virus. But right now, it's very, very difficult to get them. At least you can get sort of offshore knockoffs that probably aren't very reliable. You, you can probably still get those on the Internet. Mm-hmm. But the certified N95s or, or the KN95s are not uh, easy to get at all. I just happen to have a, a box or two of them here from uh, some work I was doing previously. Yeah, yeah, my my question is, we know they're hard to get, but I think that um, people might be anxious, but I think what I'm asking is, if if you don't really need that, you you know, why why do you want to go uh, trying to find it when it's very hard to find? Exactly, yes, exactly. And I think what Dr. Chag was saying earlier on is exactly right. Uh, Don't, I think the, the idea of saran wrap in the front is not going to help. Because remember, that makes a, uh, uh, almost a, an, an impervious fiber. You're going to have to force all of the air coming into you and out, out going out from you around the side of the mask if you put something impervious like that. Okay. So leave the fiber open. Let the, let the fiber do its job of trying to impinge the droplets. Either coming well, I'll use a double mask then. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're very Bye. welcome. Okay, Carolyn in Halliburton. Hi, Carolyn. Yes, hello. hello. Um, I'm just calling with comments about finding a, a mask that will do what's required these days. I sew and I make masks. Um, I've, a lot of my friends do as well. And we have found that if you use the top quality quilting cotton, and it's called Batik, B-A-T-I-K, two layers of that with a pocket for a filter, and that should address uh, the requirements that are being suggested for right now. 
um, where you find these. Um, most people don't sew, but um, contact or go online for people that do. Um, and you should be able to find somebody that you can have a conversation with. And through that, you should be able to find a size that will fit you. There are different styles. And I know I make about three different kinds, and some of my friends do as well. And if somebody is a, a small face or a large jaw, etc., we've been able to accommodate. Make sure you have ear um, elastics that are adjustable, and that should address most of the issues with gaping at the side. And a little hint as far as keeping them clean. Uh, with a good quality cotton like that, you can wash it multiple times without doing any harm to the shape or the effectiveness of it. Okay. And a little tip, I um, uh, pick up at the dollar store, if you can find one that's still open, one of the salad spinners. And you can put your mask in there, put hot soapy water in, let it soak for a little bit, then use the spinner agitation to swish it around a bit. Okay, Dump Carolyn, it out, put in fresh water and rinse a few times, okay. spin it out and hang it up and you're not handling it. Okay, and Carolyn. Things are clean. Okay, thanks very much for that. Uh some uh good advice. Anyway, uh we are just about out of time. Uh so Dr. Sly, what would you like to leave us with? Uh any any mask is better than none. And if you can in, improve the odds, uh, by all means, do so. If you're going to have something uh, additional on top, make it a different fiber, not the same thing. So whatever one fiber misses, the other fiber will trap. That's probably a good idea. But any mask is better than none. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting idea as well. Dr. Chagla, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I mean, again, look at your masks. Make sure they're good fit. Make sure they minimum requirements. And, and again, a mask is an intervention to help when you have to interact with individuals. But if you can avoid interacting as much as possible, that is probably going to be the bigger bang for the buck. Okay. Um, Yep, we're all nervous. Thank you so much for that. I think uh, that's really helpful. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Libby. No problem. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.